0: Turn to the book of Numbers, if you will. It's an Old Testament book, one of the books of Moses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers is the place where I'll read in just a moment. There is a, a New Testament correlation between this verse and it, and that's the third chapter of the Gospel of John in the dialogue of Jesus with Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15. So you might want to make note of that in a moment. This book that I hold in my hand is a book about Jesus, and not just the New Testament scriptures, but the Old Testament scripture as well. The Old Testament says that somebody is coming. The Gospels say that somebody has come. And the Revelation says somebody is coming again. And that somebody is Jesus because He's the hero of the book. He stands in the shadows of every chapter. So if you've read the Bible and you didn't find Jesus in every book, you need to go back and read it again because He is in every book. And you'll find the testimony of Jesus to Jesus in prophecy and type and foreshadowing. In the sacrifices that the Jews brought in every book of the Bible. For Jesus himself said, search these scriptures, the Old Testament, for in these you will find a witness of me. And I want you to turn now and look with me at a little picture of Jesus found in the book of Numbers, this Old Testament book, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 21. And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Sounds There's such a paradox there. He just said, we don't have any food or water, and then he said, we loaf this food. That is to say, we don't have what we want. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. Now you know, of course, this is the story of the deliverance of Israel from bondage. They've been delivered from Egypt and they're headed to the Promised Land. And the tragic result of their unbelief is 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And while they're wandering in the wilderness, there began to be among these people this sinful rebellion. And that rebellion took three forms. First of all, they doubted God's promises. And they said, why is it that God has brought us out into this wilderness to die? And they doubted the promise of God. As a matter of fact, they missed the whole promise. For God had not said anything about dying. He talked about living. He had not said anything about a wilderness. He had promised a promised land. And they doubted the promises of God. Let me me say something about what it means to doubt God. About what it means not to believe in Him. You see, unbelief or doubt is not a weakness. Some people say, I just wish I had a little more, I wish I had a little more faith as though doubt was a weakness. Doubt is not a weakness. Doubt is a wickedness. Doubt is not an intellectual problem. Doubt is a moral problem and it does not spring from the mind. It springs from the heart. To doubt God is not just to trip up in a weak moment, it is to rebel against him. For Jesus said, Be careful lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. They doubted the promises of God. And they disdained the provision of God. They said, We loathe, we hate this light bread. Now this bread they were referring to was this manna that God had, let down from heaven to feed their hunger in the wilderness. And the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that this manna, this bread from heaven in the wilderness was a foreshadowing, a type of the Lord Jesus who would come one day. For Jesus said in John 6 that I am the bread that comes down from God In contrast to the manna that lasted only one day, I am the bread that comes from the Father that brings eternal life. And they said, We loaf this light bread. That manna was round, which spoke of his perfection. And it was white, which spoke of his purity. He was without sin. It tasted like honey, which spoke of his sweetness. It was miraculous, which spoke of his deity. It lay upon the ground, which spoke of His humility and His humanity. It was oily, which spoke of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Him. And it had to be lifted up, which spoke of His resurrection. And they were saying, in essence, we despise this provision of God. We'd rather have Egypt's garlic than heaven's bread. I mean, who needs a Savior? When you have signs that can stretch back the horizons of space, the weak and the old might need a savior, but we don't need this kind of provision. And they disdain the provision of God. And they despise the prophet of God. And they, grum- they grumbled against Moses. The word in the Hebrew means the growl of the guttural sound of a dog that's angry. Usually when a person gets mad at God, he gets mad at his preacher. You get out of step with God and you get out of step with your brother. When you're out of fellowship with the Father, you usually get out of fellowship with your brother. And so get right with God, Moses said. Love God, obey God, serve God, and you'll be able to see people, even unlovely people, in a different perspective. There was this sinful rebellion. And it brought about a sure retribution. And that retribution is found in verse 6. Let's read it again together. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. I need to say three things about that retribution. It was a fitting retribution. Now, because God punished sin or punishes sin, the reason why God punishes sin is because it's a just imperative. If God is just, He will punish sin, and that punishment is inescapable. It's inconceivable that it could be any any other way. The fact that God will punish sin is as sure as night follows day. It is a fitting retribution. It couldn't be any other way. It is fitting that God would visit judgment upon sin. I know that some people don't like to think of God like that. They, uh, to some people, God is this kind of a namby-pamby uh, creature with a long beard, you know, is kind of helpless. He kind of looks down upon man and he uh, says, Naughty, naughty. But the Bible's picture of of God is that He is a consuming fire. He is the thrice holy God of Israel. And because God is holy, He will not allow sin to go unpunished. If you believe that, you need to revisit Calvary and understand again what Calvary means. Calvary is the proof that God will not allow one sin to go unpunished. Paul says that the death of Christ reveals the righteousness of God. Now I know that Calvary reveals what God thinks about man, that God loves man. And His love is so great that He would give His Son to the world as a substitute. But the cross is not only a revelation of God's love for the sinner. The cross is the revelation of God's hatred for sin and He will not allow one half of one's sin to go unpunished. It is a fitting retribution. It is a fiery retribution. There's suffering here. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tried tried to paint a picture of the of the suffering of these who were bitten by this serpent in the wilderness. He said their bodies swelled and their temples throbbed and every sinew of their nerves became like a fire flashing throughout their system. There was suffering. Now if God punishes sin as a just imperative for sin, man suffers when he sins as the natural consequence of it so that suffering follows sin as surely as night follows day. And we need to take that in consideration. When Jesus walked on this earth and he invited people to follow him to become his disciples, he, he, he warned them, he said, now before you follow me, you need to count the cost of following me. No man sits down without... No man builds a tower without first sitting down and counting the cost of what it's going to cost him to build it. He said, "Now, don't you follow me until you understand what it's going to cost to follow me." Also, the Scripture says, "Before you not follow Christ, you better understand what that's going to cost you." It's hard to be a Christian. I've said that before. I've preached that. It's it's hard to be a Christian. But I also have said and say that it is hard not to be a Christian. The way of the transgressor is hard. This is the glorious life. And I'd be a Christian if there were no heaven or hell. To know Jesus Christ is the glorious life. And a man pays a tremendous price of suffering if he doesn't follow Him. You sow to the wind and you reap the whirlwind. You take coals of fire to your bosom and you will be burned. For there is the natural consequence of rejecting Christ, of sin, and that is suffering. It was a fiery retribution. It was a fatal retribution. And those that were bitten died. The scripture said, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. James said, lust when it conceives brings sin and sin when it is finished brings death. A sure retribution to the sinful rebellion. But there was a saving remedy and that saving remedy is found in verses 7 and 8. Look at it with me. So the people came to Moses and said, Confessed, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, he shall live three things about the saving remedy. First of all, it was symbolic. Now everything in this whole story is a picture of that which is to come in the person of Jesus. That's why he used it as an analogy for himself. And so when he took that brazen serpent and put it on the standard outside the camp, it was a foreshadowing or a type of The redemption that Jesus would accomplish in His death. Now what does it symbolize? The serpent is a symbol of sin. You can't say the word sin without the hiss of the serpent. In ancient times, brass was the symbol of judgment. So the brazen serpent was God's judgment upon sin. And Jesus said, this is what it means... When I come to die for the sin of the world, God judges that sin in me. And God takes our sin and places it on Jesus and judges it in Him. Now watch carefully. If God is a God of justice, whenever a man sins, God will punish that sin. It's inconceivable that it could be otherwise. So that if a man sins... Either the sinner will suffer that punishment or the substitute will suffer that punishment. Either the sinner or the sin bearer. And God made this marvelous provision. He gave us a sin bearer, a substitute, and He took our sin and His judgment upon it and judged our sin in His Son. That's what Paul means when he says... He who knew no sin, the sinless one, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith in Him. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And so because... Scripture says, the text says, it says that everyone who was bitten, everyone, didn't say how many times they were bitten, lest someone would say, I've sinned too much against God. The quantity of my sin is so great, He will never forgive me. I've had people tell me that. Doesn't say where they were bitten, lest someone says, my sin is so great, I've committed such a sin that God could not forgive me for that sin. The quality of my sin is so great. He says, everyone that was bitten. And he means that the remedy God made available in Jesus Christ is sufficient for every man's sin. I have a, an idea that some folks think that, you know, Jesus is he, he can't help me with my problems. I've I've given you this little parable somebody told before about the guys that came to the man, the paralytic man. You remember that guy was paralyzed, completely paralyzed, and they put him on a pallet, and they brought him to Jesus, four of them, and they let him down through the roof. This guy gave this little parable. He said, with a greater imagination than I have, he said these four men came to the paralytic man. One of them said, we've come. We know somebody could help you. And we've come to take you to him. His name is Jesus. I was blind and this man gave me my sight. The paralytic man said, Well, that's, you were blind, but I'm paralyzed all over. Jesus can't help me. Another man said, My hand was withered. And, and, and Jesus said to me one day, Stretch forth your hand. And I stretched. I, I, my hand was useful for the first time. The paralytic man said, Yeah, but that's just your hand. I'm paralyzed all over. Another man stepped up and he said, I'm going to take you to Jesus. He can help you. I was lame when he found me. and He gave me my my feet. I can walk and run and leap. He said, yes, but that's just your legs. Look at me. I'm paralyzed all over. The fourth man stepped up and said, I'd like to meet you. My name is Lazarus. You get the point? Whatever your problem, Jesus is the answer. Now that's a cliché, but it's a true one. Whatever your question, Jesus is the solution, the, is the answer to that question, for He is sufficient in His remedy. It was a sure remedy. Not only symbolic, sufficient, but sure. I'd like for you to tell me one person. Do you know, can you show me one man, one woman, one child, who has ever come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and has trusted Jesus for their salvation and went away without His salvation. You show me that person and I'll never preach another sermon. There was a sinful rebellion. There was a sure retribution. There was a saving remedy. There is a simple requirement. And that simple requirement is found in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. When he looks at it shall live. Three things about the requirement. Now listen to me carefully. It It is an easy requirement. Now, it's not easy in the sense that it costs nothing. It's easy in the sense that Jesus paid the full price. And you don't have to earn it. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. They didn't work for it. They didn't wait for it. They didn't pray for it. They didn't pay for it. They simply exercise the faith of a look. It's just that easy. And by easy I mean that you don't mix human works, human effort into it. Read again the third chapter of the book of Romans and there is this profound statement there that apart from the works of the law, man is justified. Now that's hard for us to to, to accept. I grew up with a, with a father who was a, was a workaholic, he worked from, from sunup to sundown, literally, and he taught us how to work, and, he was, and, and I can still hear my father saying, now there's no such thing as a free lunch, if there's anything worthwhile, you got to work for it, and you get nothing, you know, nobody's going to ever hand you anything. If you ever get anything, you're going to have to really work hard to get it. That's what I, that was the work ethic that, that, that was my environment. It's how I grew up. And so when I came to be about a senior in high school or in, in, in my youth, um, a, a man explained to me that, that justification, that salvation, was apart from human effort in the sense that man only has to receive the gift by faith. I couldn't believe that. You don't. there's no such thing as a free lunch. Anything that's worthwhile you have to work for. And so I wanted to mix works in that and miss the point. It's easy in the sense that every person in this room this morning can be saved simply by his faith look in the Lord. And Isaiah said that that a a wayfaring man, though a fool, will not err therein. And what he means is this, that a stranger who doesn't have good sense can be saved. It's that easy. It's easy, but it is essential. Now just because it's easy doesn't mean it's not essential. Unless a man, he said, looks... He will die in his sin. It is essential. Now, if I had lived in the day of Moses, if, if the preacher existed in the day of Moses, he probably would have heard all kinds. If we could take these excuses that man has and just transfer them over to the robes and sandals of the wilderness, I'm sure Moses would have heard something like this. He probably would have knocked on one tent door and said, you know there's a remedy for your sin there's a remedy for your rebellion it's to look at the brazen serpent somebody might have said well yeah but said you know there's a lot of folks down at the tabernacle who have been bitten more times than I have you need to go back down to the tabernacle straighten out all those folks who are worse off than I am then I'll then I'll uh, you know I'm not going to go down to the tabernacle and associate with all those people who are bitten worse than me and down the street was a neighbor probably who had a, you know, these, these serpents would attach themselves to the arms, to the, to the bodies of those folks and just hang on. There's probably somebody in the house down there who would say, Well, yeah, I, I've heard about that remedy, but I think, I, I, think I, can, I, I, can, I can get rid of this thing myself. I'm going to reform. I'm going to turn over a new leaf as soon as I get rid of this snake. I'm not going to ever go near one again, I promise. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. The only problem is that when that venom got into the bloodstream, it was diffused throughout the whole body and sin is an infection diffused throughout the fallen nature and reformation cannot cure it. And there's probably somebody up the street who probably might say something as ridiculous as this. Yeah, I'd like to be cured, but, you know, I kind of hate to give up my snake. I've kind of gotten attached to it, no pun intended. I've kind of gotten attached to the snake, and I hate to give it up. You know, uh, it's kind of like a person going to the doctor, and the doctor says, you have a malignant tumor, and we want to perform surgery. And and the person said, yeah, I'd kind of like to have surgery and get that tumor out, but, you know, I kind of hate to give up my cancer. Would a person not give up dust for diamonds? No good thing will he withhold from those who walk is blameless. And then there might be someone who told me, like after a service I preached in a little town called Gresham, Oregon, there are many ways to be cured, and your way is one way, and my way is another way. And so I'll just, you know, there are other ways in order, there are other ways to be to be cured, to be healed, to be saved. Your way and my way. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not just a remedy. He's not even the best remedy. He's the only remedy for man's sin. No man comes to the Father, he said, but by me. Listen carefully. If you've not come in faith to Jesus Christ, I don't care how many times you've been baptized or how many churches you're a member of, if you've never come to God through faith in Jesus, you've never made it to God. It is an essential remedy. One last thought: It is an elective remedy. Now, nobody was drug out of the tent, kicking and screaming, drug out to outside the camp to the tent to the uh, serpent on the pole. Nobody was held up with his face toward the the brazen serpent and his eyelids pried open so he could see. Nobody was nobody was done that way. The remedy was on the basis of man's choice. You see, the important thing this morning is not whether you go out of here. The issue is not, am I going out of here agreeing with the preacher or disagreeing with the preacher? That's not the issue. The issue is not whether you're going to go out of here believing what I've said or not believing it. The issue this morning is, are you going out of here alive or are you going out dead? That's the issue. For the election, the choice that a man has is the choice to live or to die. It's as simple as that. And if in your imagination you could see this scenario, there's death everywhere, funerals, so many funerals they couldn't do them all, Moses and Aaron. And so they were just scratching out little shallow graves in the wilderness. And they were putting these bodies in them Eyes were red from weeping. Eyes were red from grief. Faces were blanched from terror, for death was everywhere. And in this tent is a woman with her only son, a young man. And every indication, every symptom is that he has death. He's had the fiery serpent. And she cries out in her anguish, Oh God, no. Not my son, not my only son. About that time down the street comes the shout of a prophet. There's a cure, there's a cure. And so they rush to the door of the tent and and to hear the prophet's message, there's a cure outside the camp. All that one must do is to look to the provision of God, look to the brazen servant and live. And so he struggles to his feet. Into the door of the tent, and there, a little ways outside the border of the camp, he sees, and he lives. I was watching. Somebody said they saw Billy Graham this week. I was watching the other night. You know, frankly, um, I told my wife and said Billy Graham seems like he's slowing down. <laughs> he's, I guess we all do when we get our age. Wasn't that great of a sermon? But when that invitation was given, in about five minutes, there was this front of this place packed with people. And they were coming from everywhere. And you could just sense the power and the blessing of God as it just kind of came across from that faraway place in North Dakota to my television den room. And what you saw as people came out of every place, young and old, is the freedom to choose life. And they came simply to stand in a place and look to Jesus for life. The book of Isaiah said, O Israel, look to Jesus, look to God and be saved all the ends of the earth. My invitation this morning, I don't, all, I don't often preach. If you've been here in these worship services, not too often do I preach sermon of salvation, evangelistic, because I realize that most of the people that come on Sunday to hear me preach are people who have already professed faith in Christ. But I'm also aware that they are watching on television this morning people who have never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. And I'm also aware that every time I preach there are folks who are members of the church who have been baptized who have never at point of time repented of sin placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And we have a Church membership roll full of people. Every church does. Of people who have been baptized, joined the church, but have never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. I want you to do that this morning. I want you to get up out of your seat. If you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ and you've never trusted Him for the first time, to come the way God has made possible for your salvation. That's the way of faith in the substitute and there may be some who needs to come and join the church and your coming will encourage other people and Christians who are saved and you know you're saved but you're not living for God and there's not much difference between your life and the lost man and you need to get right with God and get right with one another and so your coming this morning is going to be an encouragement to lost people and we're going to pray that they'll not be one not be one who will go away choosing death. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you that when we sin against you in rebellion and we disdain your provision and by our action we despise you, you made a remedy, a saving remedy And that remedy was the person of your Son, and on Him you laid the iniquity of all of us and judged it in Calvary. And So I pray this morning that just as we are, just as we are sinners, that we'll come today to lay our sin upon the substitute in faith and receive His free gift. And I pray that if there's fear, there's doubt, you'll take it away. And that every stronghold of unbelief will be torn down and taken away. And that the unbelieving will turn to look to Jesus and live. And I pray for Christians to get right with thee today. And for church members to place their life in fellowship with a local congregation. I pray, Father, that you'll get glory from this invitation and victory from it because I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, I invite you to stand. And if God has spoken to your heart, if God tugs at your heart, if there is this voice inside of you saying it's time for you to come, I invite you to step out and come right quickly while the choir sings, you come.